Stocks, let's talk. Stocks, let's talk. Stocks, let's talk. Let's talk. Let's talk. Welcome back. This is Stocks Let's Talk. I've got James Elman here. We're very excited to have him. James, you're the author of a book called Hot Stocks, which is about stocks that might benefit from climate change and what's going on in terms of the climate. Is that a summary of accurate logline for your book? That's probably a good start of the elevator pitch on the way down. If it was a, a taller building, I'd probably add on it. It is not just about the wind turbines and the solar panels. It also includes the companies that are going to be building the infrastructure to keep our cities from uh, getting inundated by storms, as well as trying to focus on what industries and what companies are going to do particularly poorly due to climate change going forward. So investors can position their portfolio, not just to make money from uh, the changes taking place in the climate, but also to hopefully avoid those areas of the market that are going to be under great pressure. Got it. Dangers and opportunities prevented by the, uh, by the coming climate change. But let's back up. Tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you come to do this? How did you, what's your, what's your biography that led you to write this book and, and brought you here to the podcast? Uh, I am uh, both a, right now I am a, I write books. I'm a historian and I also write books on stock market investing. Um, my books are mostly on World War II, uh, the stock market investing. Of course, uh, we've got hot stocks investing for impact and profit in a warming and uh, uh, changing world. Um, I used to run most recently a relatively successful hedge fund called Seacliff Capital. And then I worked at Ascend Capital, a larger hedge fund before I uh, decided it, I've had, had enough and now I consider myself a recovering hedge fund manager and uh, am engaged in other activities. I also used to be a, a bank examiner at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, which had me basically going out and doing things as mundane as, as counting how much cash was in the vault to make sure that the, the books uh, actually tied correctly at the end of the day. Okay, now you're actually, you're, you're uniquely positioned to talk to us as a hedge, as an experienced hedge fund guy about the crazy events of the past week, we're recording on Tuesday, February 2nd, the GameStop, Reddit, uh, internet excitement is sort of, it seems like it may be winding down, but who knows where we'll be next week. Do you have any perspective? Were you following that story? Do you have any thoughts about it? Any insight you can offer as an experienced hedge fund guy? Well, it, it's kind of fun watching the big guys uh, lose some money sometimes and seeing all these small guys, particularly with a, a company, you, you know, Robin Hood, so apt. Um, of course, what they're investing in are not necessarily very good companies. At the end of the day, when I was a kid, I'd probably go down to the store to buy myself a, some sort of shrink-wrapped software or an old Atari cartridge to, to plug in uh, so I could play Missile Command. Um I have two kids who are old enough to play video games. Uh, we've been to GameStop, but increasingly as people download their software onto their Xboxes or Playstations, uh, it's not really clear that GameStop has a great business model going forward. So what's been happening is you can basically find out what stocks are heavily shorted. Stocks are heavily shorted or usually shorted by hedge funds. And... Um, if you can make those prices go up, you will force whoever is short the stock to start covering the stock, which means they have to buy back the stock they borrowed where they were betting it would go down. And when they buy back the stock, what happens? The stock goes up that much more. So it can become a self-fulfilling prophecy that when the stock starts to go up, all the shorts and more and more of the shorts have to cover their positions. It can lead to the stock being driven up to, to great 
valuations that don't really make any economic sense. That's what's been taking place in the markets over the last week or so. And do you have any prediction or foresight uh, based on your experience on how this ends? Yes, the forecast calls for pain. It's guaranteed pain. It's going to be pain for just about everyone except for Ken Griffith, who is the biggest billionaire who's sitting in the middle of the room making money off of uh, all these trades. And most of the uh, the young members of the revolution don't realize that they're just lying in the pockets of a big billionaire who um, is in the middle of what uh, this is inside baseball for the stock market. But he helps to run a lot of the uh, the plumbing of the financial markets right now. He buys the order flow from companies like Robinhood or Fidelity or Schwab or Ameritrade or E-Trade and then turns around and buy. And after he buys, let's say, an order to buy a stock at $10, he turns around and sells that, uh, executes that order at $10.05 um, and makes, let's say, a nickel off of each of those shares and then reports back that he bought the stock. He buys it for $10.10. So he's able to make a little bit of money off of each one of those trades. So the more volume there is on GameStop, theoretically, the more money um, he makes running Citadel Securities, which is one of the world's largest hedge funds. And with the growth of retail investors and the the, the fact that, I mean, it, this is probably the first of, it won't be the last sort of hyped up uh, retail investor race to a, a hit stock, a meme stock. Maybe some people will get burned on this one, but I would guess now that things have changed a bit. This is reflective of the significant change. Retail investors can do complex stuff that used to cost money to do and used to be kind of hard to do, like trade puts and calls. Do you think, are there any areas you'd be looking at if you were still a hedge fund guy in terms of like how this broadening of the stock market, easy accessibility, you can trade stocks on your phone now, how that will play out in general in market trends, or will it continue just be a flow to the billionaires controlling the plumbing? Well, first of all, I'm very, very happy that I no longer am in the hedge fund space. And I was just joking around with some other former colleagues recently. Thank goodness when we were in business running funds, we didn't have to worry about a bunch of uh, revolutionaries with their pitchforks and their smartphones coming in and blowing up our shorts all the time and putting us out of business for no reason whatsoever. Um, so it, it's a tougher market. And, uh, I, you know, so we should be shedding a tear for all these hedge fund managers. Now I feel really sorry for them. Uh, obviously not in what really is. This is a symptom of a disease. The disease right now is we have been injecting massive amounts of liquidity into the markets. And we've been doing it the wrong way to try and alleviate the COVID pandemic. Uh, you've heard people talking about the, the K-shaped recovery, right? And mm -hmm. the people who have are on that upper arm of the K and they're doing great. And the people on the lower arm of the K, they're not doing very well at all. But so much of the government assistance, particularly that from the Fed and much of the fiscal assistance from the federal government is towards the upper arm of that K. So the, the, the steepness of that, that upper arm of the K just keeps going closer and closer to the sky. And so it's leading a huge number of people to have way too much liquidity sitting in their bank accounts or their brokerage accounts, earning absolutely nothing on savings. So it leads to rampant speculation. It leads to speculation in everything from uh, fancy 
uh, houses, and which is why home prices have been going up so much with interest rates so low and too much liquidity, all the way down to people deciding to buy GameStop or Bitcoin simply because it's going up, not because it has any rational intrinsic value. And as long as this stimulus continues, both from Washington as well as from the Fed, uh, the a number of times you will be talking to your guests about uh, crazy uh, bubbles taking place in the market will continue. Got it. So you've, you're a guy who's probably seen this story before. Have you seen cases in the past where the market had too much liquidity? How do you think that plays out? Will there eventually just be a political pushback and the and the fun will be over? Will the or we wait? Will this market end with the Fed raising interest rates? How, what is it, what is a broad term prediction from somebody who's seen this kind of thing before? Well, I, I, yes, I have seen this before. I've seen quite a few bubbles take place, both in the United States and in overseas markets. Um, the, the very simple prediction that I think just about anybody would be able to make is that eventually, yes, the Fed will have to raise interest rates when we start having some levels of inflation. And that is going to be uh, basically putting the turd in the punch bowl. And uh, the party is going to be over pretty quickly after that. Uh, we're not there yet. And uh, I do not expect we will see the Fed raising rates in 2021 uh, with some hope. I have some hope we, the economy will be have some level of normality in 2022 and the Fed will be able to start raising rates. And uh, it'll be a little bit painful for people who finance homes with floating rate interest rate mortgages. But um, it, it's part of the business cycle that's supposed to happen. Um, gotcha. You know, this is a potentially a very good time to make money on stocks. There are many companies that uh, one can hope will start to recover as people get vaccinated. That's one reason some of the people of the, the Robinhood space were buying AMC. Uh, that's the big movie theater chain, thinking that people are going to be really excited to go back into movie theaters and uh, have um, floors that, that stick to their their shoes and listen to people crunching popcorn around them. And they're, they're not going to want to sit in their homes watching their HDTVs where it's quiet um, to watch movies anymore. I don't know. I can't wait to go back to movie theaters. I can't wait to go back and or I can't wait to host some overly long, uh, embarrassing hug parties. But uh, it's only a matter of time uh, until that happens. And so there are opportunities in the stock market from companies that have been beaten down that will see recoveries. However, should they go up five or 10,000 percent like GameStop or AMC? That's probably not rational. There was something I was noticing on, I don't know if you've looked at Reddit itself, the source text here, but the, the ticker symbols AMC, Nokia, they change sometimes, but what never changes is the emoji they use, the rocket ship. And the metaphor of this stock is going to be a rocket, it's going to take off. I wondered if the message behind the message is that we should be looking at rocketry companies and uh, space exploration because it still seems to excite the imagination of investors, even while they're paying attention to movie theaters. Well, we know Jeff Bezos is uh, leaving, uh, running Amazon full time so he can focus a little bit more on his rocket ship company. And I, I'm sure that maybe that's why um, uh, Elon Musk has stepped into the uh, GameStop fray to try and get people to think about his um, uh, his rocketry company. Um, unfortunately, while there are laws of gravity that mean that if you can get a spaceship out of the gravity well of a planet, it can fly free up into the vacuum of space. Unfortunately, it's really unfortunate, but there are these things called financial statements and dollars and cents. And at the end of the day, 
uh, a company's got to make money. And if your company doesn't make money, its stock probably isn't going to be worth very much. So there's a lot more in the way of real gravity in the stock market than there are for rocket companies. Okay, well, let's talk about terrestrial matters then. I heard I first heard about your book because I was looking up the Sun Cable, which maybe you'd like to describe it for us, but it seems like the kind of massive project that you're paying attention to and maybe people would like to know more about. So let's start with the Sun Cable. Can you tell us what that is, what's going on there? Sure. Well, Sun Cable sounds revolutionary, but it's really evolutionary. It's just a bigger version of the sort of project that's already being done around the world. So Sun Cable wants to take, um, uh, make use of a big expanse of, to humans, relatively useless sun-baked land in the outback in northern Australia. You can't really use it for uh, agriculture. Um, not too many people live there. It's uh, pretty hot. It's pretty dry. And it seems like it could be a great place to just pave it over with a whole bunch of solar panels. And what they want to do with, the, with all that solar power is put it into an electric cable, a really big electric cable, and they want to put it underwater all the way from Darwin in northern Australia, all the way up past Indonesia to Singapore to power Singapore at night. Um, usually such a long run of electric cable underwater is thought of as being not feasible because you lose some electrons over the, the length of your distance, you're sending all that power. However, we've increasingly been seeing longer and longer runs of power. For example, uh, a project that's just completing from Norway all the way to England to send power down to England. The Norwegians are also sending power down to Denmark and to Germany and to the Netherlands through undersea cables. But this is by far the largest sort of project, and I believe it is supposed to power up to one-third of Singapore's total power needs going forward. My focus on um, climate change and how it affects the stock market is not so much of, hey, bud, I got mine and I want more. Let's make money off of the pain and suffering of everyone else in the world. Obviously, that would not be a, a reasonable way to invest. It's more that if we who are conscious people that we want to bequeath a livable world to our children and our grandchildren, one way we can help make that happen is by investing appropriately in those companies and those technologies that are going to help save the world and pull our capital and our investments away from companies that are helping to destroy the world. If that takes place, the share prices of green energy companies will go up, which means their cost of capital goes down. It's that much easier for them to raise more equity, more cash to expand more quickly. And if we stop investing in companies that burn coal and oil and drill for this stuff, then their stock prices are going to go down, which means their cost of capital goes up and you have less drilling in pristine Arctic wildlife refuges, or you stop uh, digging tar sands out of the earth and try to send it in a pipeline for 4,000 miles so that we can drive Hummers and big pickup trucks around. So there, you can hopefully, um, as some people have found they can over uh, life, Hopefully you can do well and also do good at the same time. Great. Now, solar power works pretty well in the daytime and in well-lit places, but then we need some way to store it. So what are you seeing in terms of how we store solar power and 
even if our power grid were totally solar, when we're charging up our electric cars, they'd need to have some kind of battery. So what are you seeing in terms of trends in batteries and storage of energy? So the cost of storage has been falling quite quickly. And it has been following the same sort of cost curves have been declining in a very similar manner to that of wind-generated power, solar-generated power, even to a lesser extent, um, geothermal power generation. The costs of generating green power have been falling very quickly. And in the last decade, they've fallen below that of the cost of building of uh, utilizing coal, petroleum, or in many cases now even natural gas to generate electricity. That has been one of the reasons why wind turbine companies and wind farm stocks have been doing so well because costs come down. And the same for solar panel manufacturers and the people who, after installing the manufacturer, the, the solar panels actually run solar farms. The costs have come down. Now, your question about storage is what about the cost of batteries? And those have also, again, been coming down. The biggest problem with most green energy is it is not what is called dispatchable. It means you can't send it out. You can't dispatch it whenever you want to, whenever the demand is there. It's intermittent. Sometimes the sun's up. Sometimes it's down. Sometimes it's windy for the wind turbines. Sometimes it's it's still and there's no wind. So to change the turn that intermittent power source into a dispatchable source, as you mentioned, you need some way to store that power until everyone plugs in their, their electric cars and needs to charge them up. So there are lots of ways to do that. Um, one is you start building green energy that is more balanced in terms of the time of day in which it is produced. Solar power generates mostly during the day. Of course, when the sun is up, uh, offshore wind tends to generate mostly in the evenings and at night. So if you can build them next to each other or relatively close to each other and hook them into the same grid, you can start to generate some balance in the supply to match against the demand. And one will imagine as we electrify the auto fleet and the truck fleet in this country and everything is more and more electrified, we are going to see an increase in demand for electricity and a lower and lower demand for gasoline and diesel fuel. And that in itself, of course, would be a real positive for uh, the emissions that are causing greenhouse gases to rise in our atmosphere, leading to higher temperatures, which create a whole host of very negative aspects for human civilization. Do you see any opportunity out there for nuclear power? Do you think that we'll be building any new nuclear plants as a somewhat renewable way to generate power? Uh, there is nothing wrong with nuclear power as a way to generate relatively clean, green energy. And also, of course, it is dispatchable. You can uh, turn up the knob all the way to 11 and pump more power out of that nuclear reactor when you want to, and you can turn it down when you want to as well, uh, unlike what you have with alternative energy. The problem with nuclear power, of course, is the chance of a massive release of radioactivity is always there. It's a small risk. It might be one in 100, one in 1,000, one in a million. But one in a million to make most of the eastern seaboard of the United States unlivable for 10,000 years is probably too high a risk to take. Um, clearly, the plants are a lot safer than the one that melted down in Chernobyl and in, in Russia uh, decades ago. But we've seen even in relatively safe plants, such as the one at Fukushima in Japan, if too many negative things happen all at the same time, you have a chance of a massive radiation and that could have potentially made 
much of the uh, the Kanto Plain of Japan unlivable for the rest of effectively for human history. I'm not sure if it's really worth the risk when there are other ways that are relatively safe that don't lead to potentially um, leading to uh, humans not being able to live in a major part of the earth. Uh, so I'm not sure we really want to go the nuclear power uh, path. Here in the United States, at the end of the day, building a nuclear power plant is very expensive. It's very difficult. It, it is cost prohibitive and it's cost prohibitive versus building new wind or new solar or more, geother more new geothermal projects. So they're probably just not going to take place. At the end of the day, people complain about having wind turbines next door to their house. They're certainly not going to want Three Mile Island next to their house. In your book, you mentioned a couple. I want to go back to this topic of geothermal because you mentioned in your book a geothermal company that I'd never heard of. It's Ormat Technologies, and they seem to be the leader on making, building, and uh, maintaining geothermal projects. Could you tell us a little bit about where you see the future of geothermal energy? There, there's a great deal of, of opportunity for geothermal. Ormat is one of the only ways to invest in it in the stock market. There are several other companies that also are engaged and compete against Ormat, but they're usually part of much bigger industrial conglomerates. So you don't really have the same uh, ability to narrowly as an investor invest just in geothermal. Ormat is one of the only ways to do it right now. Uh, I, I own the stock of uh, the Full disclosure, I'm not recommending it, but I do think that geothermal has a great deal of growth in front of it. There are a couple of reasons. The first reason is that underground drilling, thanks to the oil and gas industry, has become dramatically better in the last decade and a half. All this fracking that everyone hears about is basically using computers and seismic readings to drill instead of down, to drill down and out. And when you can do that, you can make better use of finding and utilizing uh, hot spots in the Earth's core to heat where hot water is being generated. That hot water from geothermal is what creates steam, turns the turbines, and creates electricity. There also are these more modern, what are known as binary plants. Binary meaning two, what you do is instead of having to find 300 degree water under the earth. You only have to find 100 degree water under the earth. And it's a lot easier. There are many more places with 100 degree water. The 100 degree water comes up, you have it run through a heat exchanger where it interacts with some sort of fluid that has a much lower boiling point than water. That turns that fluid into a gas it, uh, and it turns to its own steam. It turns the turbine, makes the electricity. It goes back through the system and cools back down, gets heated up again by that 100 degree water. So there are a lot of places, particularly um, along the Pacific Rim, that have a great deal of geothermal capacity. And we have a lot of room to be able to expand that capacity. And if I, just as a moment to, to try and tie that back to uh, your question about batteries, uh, the New York Times had an article recently about the Salton Sea down in Southern California. There's a good deal of geothermal power capacity there. There are already a bunch of geothermal plants. There's also a lot of lithium there that can be mined out of that uh, mostly dried up uh, salt uh, pan that is the Salton Sea. But you need a lot of power to get the lithium out. 
You could use more of the geothermal that's already right there in that area to make the batteries. And those batteries, of course, can be used to store your intermittent wind and solar panel power so that uh, you're able to dispatch it to cities and suburbs and consumers when they need it, rather than just when the sun's up or the wind's blowing. See, this is what I loved about your book. Although in some ways, the story you're telling is, I wouldn't say pessimistic, but realistic about the challenges we face. There are also all these clever, interesting, possible solutions to some of these problems, new technologies that could deliver us new power, new sources of power, ways to adapt and change. And I found it uh, kind of uplifting in a way as a book. Well, uh, hope is always uh, makes us feel better as humans. Hope is not a strategy. And at the end of the day, uh, as Gordon Gecko would say, greed is good and it's uh, purifying and liberating. Um, these sorts of green technologies need to pencil out. They need to be able to make money. And what's really changed for 2021 versus 2011 is the technology has changed. The costs are dramatically lower. And again, you can generate uh, electricity now from solar power or from wind power and store it more cheaply than you can from burning coal or natural gas or petroleum. And that's before we take into account the externalities of burning these hydrocarbons. The externalities meaning the negatives that take place to the entire society, to the, the general commons of the world. Um, that's why people talk about wanting to have a carbon tax, because as you burn these hydrocarbons, you let out a lot of heat and you let out a lot of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases that heat up the earth. And many times people think about uh, global warming and they think about uh, sea level rise and they're tired of hearing about uh, climate alarmists. And at least in my book and from many now, try and be much more clear eyed and rational about it. We're not talking about um, uh, you know, the ice caps melting tomorrow and we're living in water world where Kevin Costner's got gills and he's swimming around under the water. No, we're just talking about a few inches, a few couple of feet of sea level rise, which make huge swaths of the most expensive and most productive real estate in the world in the coastal cities uninhabitable or unlivable or unusable and will require huge amounts of expense to build seawalls and dikes and levees and pumps. And then not just from the sea level rise, warmer oceans mean bigger windstorms with more power that dump more water, which cause more damage and cause more flooding. And of course, that sea level rise also means you have more saltwater intrusion into potable water supplies. So you don't have cheap water coming out of the tap the way we're used to. You have to start spending a lot of money to protect your water system. And then finally, a lot of the seafood we love to eat will be threatened by ocean acidification. More carbon dioxide in the atmosphere that we're pumping into it leads to the, the seas becoming more acidic, which mean shellfish can't build their shells, which mean that lots of fish don't have anything to eat. That means we humans don't have as much to eat. So there are a great number of negative cascading events that we can avoid simply by investing and becoming more green. And one would hope that going forward, we will start to price in some externalities of burning hydrocarbons to power our current society. And if we do that, then 
it means all of these green energy stocks will become that much more valuable. They've already gone up a lot, particularly with Joe Biden winning and coming into office. They've already become more valuable as the cost of generating green energy comes down. But then if you put on a reasonable cost of the externality of how many um, people are killed every year through pulmonary problems just from burning coal, we will not be burning coal as a civilization in 10 years if we start to price that efficiently. Unfortunately, it's, it's hard to find a lot funny about uh, green investing. Uh, the positive is uh, at least it's starting to become very uh, lucrative. And uh, those stocks have been doing extremely well. And with the change in the political environment and the change in technology and the cost of generating that power, I think we're going to see those stocks continue to outperform the market as they have in the last year and hopefully will for the next 10 or 20 years. Well, there may not have been a lot funny about it, but there was a lot of imagination in your book and a lot of big ideas. Uh, at one point in your book, you hypothesized, you didn't recommend this exactly, but you talked about the possibility of a dam where the Golden Gate Bridge is now. And just thinking in that kind of big level <laughs> definitely lines up with um, some of the premise of this podcast. So we very much enjoyed the book. The book is called Hot Stocks. You can get it on Amazon. Uh, you also have, there, there's several Medium articles you've written that have some uh, free introductions to your ideas. But uh, I checked this book out. James, before you go, I want to talk to you about your, your work as a World War II historian. You've written two books now about World War II. Can you introduce us to what interests you about the topic and what you've been thinking about? Well, World War II is, is endlessly fascinating. And, you know, when, when you go to the outlet mall and they always have a bookstore there, right? So when the ladies go shopping, there's a, something for all the guys to do. And they all sit around at the bookstore reading World War II books. So um, it, it's amazing how those books continue to sell well. The movies keep getting made. But why is World War II so interesting? It's because it was the biggest event in human history. You had these amazingly large characters, Churchill and FDR and Mussolini and Hitler and Stalin. I mean, these guys are endlessly fascinating. I mean, the bad guys had really black hats on and the good guys seem to have really white hats on. And we don't, Most everything shades of gray now in, in history. So it's so much nicer to, to look back when, it, when you really knew who were the good guys and who were the bad guys. Well, your first book, Hitler's Gamble, talks about two guys, Hitler and Stalin, at odds with each other. Neither of them, I would say, not entirely black-headed. Oh, no, it was it, right. It was bad guy versus bad guy there. Yeah. So the question is, who is worse? It's hard to say. Yeah, you know, uh, I'm, I'm not really sure. I'm not one of there, – there are many historians who have written books trying to say who is worse. I'm just going to put them both as being pretty crappy human beings that should go in the ash heap of history. Um but my book was really trying to at least be rational and question, why is it that Hitler invaded the Soviet Union? And was it really this foolish, stupid blunder, as many historians say it was? And I argue, looking at the rational and the data and the GDP, um, it was not. It was Hitler's best opportunity to achieve his war aims. Now, also, you know, studying World War II and studying history is certainly very helpful to try and understand what's happening today. Uh, history doesn't necessarily repeat itself, but often, of course, it, the old saying is it does rhyme. And I just came out with a, a, a small book that tried to highlight the, the parallel life arcs, the rise, 
the crash, and then the greater rise and the final big crash of Donald Trump and Douglas MacArthur. And uh, I've been working on Douglas MacArthur for a while. I have a couple of books I'm hoping to write about them. I'm hoping to publish uh, his entire collection of um, his communiques from World War II that uh, have never been published and released. Uh, I finally have the entire collection, and now I just have to edit them down. But as I've been studying MacArthur, the number of things he did seemed increasingly surprising how they mimicked and mirrored the life of Donald Trump and their careers. And um, they both were very much demagogues. They both led to um, promised easy solutions to great problems. They appealed to very much the same sort of people, often in the exact same parts of the country. And in the end, they both challenged our constitutional democratic system. Both of them failed to win out in their attempt to overthrow that constitutional system. One of them clearly, obviously, faded away, that great old soldier. Um, Donald Trump, of course, has no intention of fading away, but uh, it certainly seems that is a real possibility for the rest of his life arc. Let's hope so. <laughs> That's certainly what I hope uh, is the outcome. Uh, <laughs> but it's up to people to read your book and decide for themselves. James, thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it. You've got some great insights and we hope that people will check it out. Are you on Twitter or social media or anything like that? Or should people just find you in your published work? Uh, I'm afraid I'm pretty terrible at social media. Uh, I do have a website, jameselman.com. If you want to take a look at uh, just the, the, the things that I published, uh, Amazon, as you mentioned, is a great place to order. You can order at Barnes & Noble. Any bookstore can, covers my, carries my books. Not too many of them are open right now, but uh, I appreciate all the time today, Steve. Thanks for having me on. Thanks so much. Appreciate it.